0: You'll find your place in verse 39 of Luke chapter 2. And while you're finding your place, I'll say a few words by way of introduction. Jesus has many names and titles. We call him Lord, we call him Savior, we call him King, and we call him Christ. We call him Emmanuel, God with us, the man of sorrows. We acknowledge him as the greater prophet and our great high priest, and we recognize him as the Son of Man and the Son of God. Today, however, I also want you to consider one of Jesus' Most amazing titles, Brother. We learn this title from the Apostle Paul and from the Book of Hebrews. In Romans eight twenty nine, we read that God the Father predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is God determined before the foundation of the world that we who have believed in Christ would be adopted as God's children. Accordingly, it is his will that we should become like Christ the eternal Son of God. Likewise, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. In Hebrews 2, 11 and 12, where he cites Psalm 22. Indeed, after Jesus was raised, he spoke to Mary Magdalene in this way, speaking about his disciples in John 20, verse 17. He said to Mary, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. We could spend more time exploring these thoughts, but this brief introduction must be sufficient for now as it establishes the consistent truth from Scripture that we recognize Jesus not only as our Lord and Savior, not only as our Redeemer, but also as our elder brother because He regards us as His brothers and sisters. For he holds the position of firstborn, not by birth, for he is eternal, but as one who is preeminent. Therefore, in counting him as our brother, we should look to his example. And in so doing, we can learn what it means to live as children of our Heavenly Father. This morning in the narrative before us, we will begin to see what it looks like to live as a faithful child of God as we look to the example of the perfect Son of God. And so if you found your place, would you follow along with me As I read in Luke 2, beginning in verse 39, and I will read to the end of the chapter. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom, And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him, then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we ask that that you would come and be among us by sending your Spirit so that we might have understanding this morning. We look at this passage and consider the Wisdom and understanding of Your Son, even at such a young age, and we realize that we so often, though we are much older than 12, many of us, lack the understanding that He possessed. And yet this was Spirit-empowered wisdom that You gave Him. We pray, O Lord, that You would do the same in our midst, that You would send Your Spirit to give us understanding, that we might understand Your Word and know how to apply it to receive it, treasuring it in our hearts. These things we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let me remind you of some things we've read already in Luke's Gospel. In Luke one you you'll remember that Gabriel, when he visited Mary, he said of Jesus, among many things, that he shall be called the Son of the Most High. Now, we hear these words in a different context, with different information than was available to Mary at that time. However, let me suggest that all that we understand concerning the unique sonship of Jesus was not always clear, may not have been clear to Mary. To be sure, she would have recognized that this was a high and exalted title, but without further revelation, she could not have been certain as to its meaning. See, on the one hand, the title could merely have reflected the miraculous nature of Jesus' birth, for Mary was a virgin and the Spirit of God miraculously caused her to conceive. On the other hand, it could refer to the fact that Jesus is a son of David. You see, in the Old Testament, we see that God designated the king from David's line as his son. This is clear in Second Samuel chapter 7. When God made a covenant with David, in Second Samuel 7 verses 14 and 15, He said of his sons, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you Solomon understood that this spoke of him but also that it was about all of the sons that would come from David's line and so he wrote in Proverbs 3:11 and 12 drawing from this promise that God made to David these words my son do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof for the Lord reproves him whom He loves, as a father of the son in whom He delights. Solomon understood at that time that if one, if a king that is of David's line, was to live as a faithful son of God, that he was to uh, to not despise the discipline of the Lord, even if it might be unpleasant, but to embrace it as a sign of God's love as a father. But we also must recognize that most of these kings, in fact. All of them, in some way, failed. They failed to heed Solomon's advice. Even Solomon failed because he came to despise the discipline of the Lord and turn from God to worship idols. David's sons would rebel against their God and Father and refuse to honor Him. But the prophets spoke of a day when God would raise up another son of David. They spoke of a day when another son of David would succeed where these men failed by living faithfully before God all his days. This son of David would also be more than a son of David. Though the full meaning of that statement was veiled before his coming. In this gospel, Luke has begun to pull back that veil. And in this passage, he tugs a little more at that curtain to show us what it means, to begin to show us what it means to say that Jesus is the Son of the Most High, that Jesus is the Son of God. And so at this early stage of Jesus' life, we begin to see that as we see the Son of God in His Father's house. Now let me call your attention to the way our passage begins and ends. You see, in verse 39 and 40, we read these words, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, And and, and the favor of God was upon him. And then if you look at verse 51 and 52, you read again. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And though these phrases are not identical, you can see that these phrases are very similar. They are like bookends in our passage. They recall the idea of returning to Nazareth and they speak of Jesus' maturation in terms of wisdom. And he is one who is being filled with wisdom, and he is being filled with strength, and he is increasing in stature and in favor, the favor of God, the grace of God that is is upon him. In one sense, these, as I said, are like bookends. They, They show us the order of Luke's gospel. That is, if you recall from the very beginning of the gospel, Luke has told us that this is an orderly narrative. But they're also like chain links, Showing us the progress of his gospel, because this is not just an orderly narrative, but it's a narrative of the things Luke said in the beginning, the things that have been accomplished among us, that is, the things that pertain to fulfillment. And so, not only do they show us the boundaries of our text this morning, but they also link it with those that have come before us. Because in verse 4 of chapter 2, we see how Joseph and Mary depart from Nazareth, and then in the passages that follow, we see that consistent emphasis, especially in verses 21 through 24, and in verse 27, on their obedience to the law of Moses. And these things even recall things from chapter 1, particularly in the life of John, the obedience of his own parents, and in, John, uh, in, in John's maturation, which Luke describes in very similar terms in sh- verse 80 of chapter 1. And there we read, and the child grew and became strong in spirit he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is not just an academic discussion, what I'm talking about, in terms of the order and the structure of the text. You see, what I want you to see is the way that Luke identifies his passages and orders it, but also the way that he connects them one to another. He wants us, I suggest to you, he wants us to think about that order. And when we do think about it, what we see is this. Two things at least. We see that this narrative from the time it began through this one that we're at this morning is a narrative that progresses. It progresses from promise to fulfillment. And it's also a narrative of contrast. It's a narrative that places Jesus in contrast with John. They're very similar, but the contrast is always one of lesser to greater. John increased in stature. John increased in strength. But Jesus' increase was greater because Luke notes his extraordinary growth in wisdom. And he notes the way that the grace of God is upon him. Recall John, Luke 1.17. John was one who would point people, re, cause them to return to the wisdom of the just. And in that turning, Jesus is the wise one to whom they would turn, the righteous one, the just one, to whom they would look as they embraced the wisdom of God, you see. And all of this moves then, in this contrast, from promise to fulfillment. For in the opening narrative, we've heard many things said about Jesus, but He's been a baby, or it's been prior to His conception. We've heard a lot about Him, but we haven't seen Him act. But in this passage, Luke first presents Jesus acting and speaking, and in those actions, the very first thing he presents before us, in terms of fulfillment, is a picture of the wisdom of the Son of God. I suggest to you that this is a central theme in Luke's gospel, the wisdom of the Son of God. And we can think about it as we proceed through this text under three headings. This morning, we will look at the wisdom of Mary's son, the wisdom of God's son, and the wisdom of God's servant. So as you think about that order, let us proceed through our exposition then. We note that what happens in this narrative is rather straightforward. Jesus' parents, every year, according to custom, went to Jerusalem at Passover, which was the thing that a pious Jew was expected to do to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem according to the law. <clears throat> and when he was 12 years old, they took him up, which was also according to custom. But as, things, as events unfold, they're there for the feast, and they stay there, and then when it's over, they head back to Nazareth, and they go a day's journey, and they don't realize that Jesus is not with them. They would have been in a large group of family and neighbors from Nazareth, and so they just simply assume Jesus is in our midst Jesus is maybe with his cousins or his uncles or some other member of our community. And so they get a day's journey away from Jerusalem, and then they realize, when they lay down for the night, presumably, they realize, where's Jesus? He's not with us. And they go and they make search for him. And they go to their family, and then they go to their friends and their neighbors and their uh, 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 traveling companions, and they don't find him. And so they set back out for Jerusalem. And there they find Him, finally after three days, in the temple, learning from the teachers of the law, asking them questions, and answering their questions. And that narrative is straightforward, but as we consider it and the things that Jesus says after they discover Him, I want to draw your attention to the vocabulary of this passage. I want you to draw your attention to the words that Luke uses. Because what he's done in this passage is he's used a lot of words that refer to wisdom in different ways, and he's used a number of words that refer to familial relations in different ways, and he's woven them together to show us the nature of the wisdom of Jesus. First, let me draw your attention to how Luke speaks about wisdom. We've seen it in the opening and closing verses and the notes about how Jesus was filled with wisdom. That would be a way of speaking of the Spirit's work in his life. And we'll come to that and talk about that in a few minutes. But he's filled with wisdom. And then we see that in contrast as well by all these different terms that Luke uses to speak about wisdom or the lack thereof. Note how he describes Mary and Joseph. When Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem in verse 43, his parents did not know it. And then when we look down and you see what he says to them, he says, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? We see the amazing understanding of the boy Jesus, that people marvel at his understanding and his answers. We see how his parents respond that they're astonished. And that they are in great distress. Words that speak to the fact that they were perplexed. And they were filled with mental anguish. As the, the events, these events unfolded. People, other people were amazed. Another word that refers to the mental response. The mental state. And conveys the fact that many people did not understand what was going on. Even when Jesus spoke, Mary did not understand the words that He spoke. All of these words and phrases convey the sense of wisdom. And even here we see a slight allusion to the book of Proverbs in Mary's response because though she did not understand, she responded wisely to the Word of God for she treasured these things in her heart, which is a command in Proverbs. Treasure these things, treasure these commandments in your heart. So Luke is highlighting the wisdom of Jesus in contrast to the lack of understanding that people in this narrative, demonstrate. But he also interweaves it with words that refer to familial relationships. Notice again, there are three references to Jesus his parents, his parents, his parents, his parents. There are references to his relatives, refer- a reference to his acquaintances. His mother is referenced twice. Mary calls him son. She says, Your father and I. He refers to the temple as my father's house. We wonder, what is Luke doing here? He has written this narrative in such a way as to highlight a particular aspect of the wisdom of Jesus, namely his understanding of the relationship that mattered most in his life. You see the way their search progresses. They move outward to further, in further distance in terms of familiar relations. When they discover that He's not with Mary, and He's not with His adoptive father, Joseph. They look to their relatives. Is Jesus with His cousins, His aunts, His uncles? No, He's not there, so they look even further out. What about the members of our community, His neighbors? Those are the people that would have been traveling with Him, that that is referred to as His acquaintances. And again, they do not find Him with anyone. They're moving further away from His closest relationships in their mind. But when they come back to Jerusalem and they find Him in the temple with the teachers, people who He's not related to whatsoever, they say, what ha- why have you done this to us? And Mary says, your Father and I, putting that emphasis on your Father, your Father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And what does Jesus say? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house In other words what Jesus is saying is why did you search in that direction why didn't you search from not to the further relations but to my closest relation why didn't you look for me in the temple in my father's house They didn't understand this why did they not understand it because they did not understand what he understood about himself. That he was not just Mary's son. He was the son and is the son of God. And that relationship was the fundamental relationship in his life, the most important relationship in his life. And he was living faithfully in light of that relationship, doing what his father would have him be doing. Now, we hear these words that he says to his mother, and we might say, well, that seems like the response of a brat to his mother. We should not interpret it as any disrespect whatsoever, for we see in verse 51 that when he goes back to Nazareth, he's submissive to his parents. It's not a sign of disrespect, but it's a reasonable and right response to his mother. It's a one that recognizes the priority of his relationship to God, his heavenly Father, and our heavenly Father, but the fact that he enjoys a unique and special relationship as the eternal Son of God. The wisdom of Mary's son is seen in his understanding of the fact that he is the Son of God, and he is acting appropriately in light of that fact. And so as we then turn our attention to the wisdom of God's Son, and we think about what he's showing us, this calls us to reflect on what it means and what it looks like in the context of his humanity, in the context of his human life, to live as the Son of God. Now there's another reason why Mary might have been confused at what he said, why she did not understand the saying. And you might have a footnote in your Bible that draws your attention to this. In my Bible, for instance, the footnote says this, or about my father's business. You see, if I literally translated this from the original, it could sound like this. Did you not know that I must be in my father's? And so certainly this could mean in my father's house in the context that he's actually in the temple. It's like saying, I'm going to my dad's. You know that I'm talking about his house. But it can also mean I had to be about my father's affairs. I had to be doing my father's will. I had to be doing his business. And this ambiguity adds to Mary's confusion. Let me suggest to you that it's not necessary for us to resolve this ambiguity right away. Jesus is in his father's house, as I pointed out. But this passage also points to his commitment to do his father's will. And I suspect that the ambiguity was intentional when he said it. And it's intentional in Luke. And she responded in the right way to those things which are not clear. She treasured it up in her heart. Because in the unfolding narrative of Luke's gospel, we will come to understand what it means for Jesus to be in his father's. What it means for him to be in the Father's presence, but also doing his Father's will. You see, Jesus is not just the wise Son of God. We also need to see that he is the wise servant of God. And to see that, I want you to see how this passage recalls passages from the Old Testament and also foreshadows what will take place in Luke's Gospel. For Mary's confusion was rooted in the fact that she did not yet have the events that Luke records, but we have the privilege of looking ahead and looking back and seeing how these things that are happening fit into the wise plan of God. I have suggested that this passage points forward in our narrative, and it does so by means of subtle allusions, both to the past and to the future. In Isaiah chapter 11, Hear these words from Isaiah 11 and listen to the way that Isaiah speaks about wisdom and uses the language of wisdom to speak about the Christ. It's in Isaiah 11 verse 1 if you're turning there. Here Isaiah prophesies of the Christ and he says this about him. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That is from David's father, from David's line. And the branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Many scholars have recognized that this passage subtly alludes to Isaiah 11, that Luke uses the language in verse 40 and in verse 52 filling and wisdom and understanding throughout. That he is presenting to us Jesus as the one who fulfills what Isaiah prophesied that a son of David would be uniquely endowed with the Spirit so that he would live his life with wisdom and this is the first that we see it in Jesus' life. But Isaiah also spoke of the wisdom of Christ in another way. If you turn over in Isaiah to Isaiah, 52 and 53. Beginning in Isaiah fifty-two thirteen, we read these words, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. And if you're not familiar with the content of Isaiah 53, know that in what follows, Isaiah prophesies of the atoning death of Christ, that Christ would be the suffering servant who makes atonement for His people by means of giving His life as a sacrifice for them. And he introduces that prophecy with the language of wisdom by calling him the servant of the Lord who acts wisely. Now in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we could translate that Greek translation with these words, Behold, my boy shall understand. Because in Greek, the word for servant and the word for boy is the same. And it's the word that Luke Here's now, uses here, when Mary finds the boy and she beholds the boy and she sees his understanding. She beholds the servant of the Lord, the child of the Lord, the son of the Lord, understanding, demonstrating his understanding in this first way. And as Isaiah goes on, he uses the language of wisdom throughout that prophecy about Christ's atoning death. In Isaiah fifty three eleven, we read that by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. One ancient church father wrote about this passage in this way. The prophet says he shall understand, by which he means that he will do all things with understanding and wisdom, and will speak in a way befitting God. This indeed was a work of wisdom befitting God that the only begotten Word of God took on flesh on behalf of others. He became a beggar among us on earth in order that we might become rich from His poverty. And by believing in Him, we might be washed of sin's defilement since the law given through Moses cannot take away sins. By the death of His own flesh, He destroyed death. He overturned destruction and He fashions anew those... Overpowered by death, so that they become incorruptible. And later on, he writes, Therefore, he says, my servant shall understand, for everything done for our sake was done with understanding and wisdom. According to the psalmist, in wisdom he made all things. You see, Isaiah presents the cross, as he prophesies of the cross, as the supreme act of wisdom demonstrated by the servant of the Lord. And I'm saying to you that Luke 2 foreshadows that event. That event when the Son of God, about 20 years later, would come into the temple in Luke 20, verse 1, and he would sit before the teachers of the law, and they would ask him questions, and he would demonstrate his supreme wisdom and understanding and they would not be able to answer him or to correct him and they would fall silent and then he would turn their attention to his identity to who he was and ask them a question how if the Christ is David's son does David call him Lord and as he turns his attention to his identity as a son of David and more than a son of David they fall silent and they reject his wisdom and instead they make plans to put him to death. And yet even this accorded with the perfect wisdom of God. a Wisdom which only Christ understood in his life. For he predicted that it must take place. He said it in Luke 9, 44-45. And here again how Luke uses the language of wisdom to describe what Jesus says and what, the way his disciples respond. In Luke 9, 44-45 Jesus says to them, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand these things. They did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them. And again, when he predicts a third time, in Luke 18, Luke uses the language of wisdom. And taking the twelve, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. They would not understand until after his resurrection when he confronted them and rebuked them with the language of wisdom for not having wisdom and he said to two of his disciples oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that the christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory and later with all of his disciples he opened their minds to understand and taught them the scriptures All throughout Luke's Gospel, Jesus demonstrates the fact that He understood that it was the will of the Lord to crush Him. And even from this first moment in Luke chapter 2, Jesus, though we cannot say how fully He comprehended that as a 12-year-old boy, we see His commitment to do the Father's will from the earliest moments of His life. He was faithful son of God and he lived as the faithful son of God because in his humanity he lived as the servant of the Lord who understood the will of the Lord and fully submitted himself to the will of the Lord knowing that if it was the will of the Lord to crush him as Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 verse 10 it was also the will of the Lord to exalt him with these words some of which also draw from the language of Proverbs Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. That language is from Proverbs. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. I I submit to you this morning, that verse, verse 10 of Isaiah 53, is not possible in light of what Isaiah says throughout that passage, unless the Christ is to be raised. And Christ knew it, and He was raised. He lived faithfully as the servant and the Son of the Lord. And we ought to see that Luke chapter 2 points to that, foreshadowing it. What do we do with this then? How do we apply it in our lives? Let's draw this to a close by reflecting on the wisdom of Christ as our brother, and by learning from Him what it looks like to live wisely before our Heavenly Father. It will be fitting for us to focus these applications on our theme of wisdom by moving then from knowledge to action, from understanding to application. But that's ultimately the aim of wisdom. So let me begin with something that I want you to know concerning the Son of God. We must understand what it means to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the primary focus of the text before us and many of those which will follow it. As I said before, to say that Jesus is the Son of God does not imply that He had a beginning. For the Gospel of John, in it, at the very beginning, we read these words, which you heard preached two weeks ago. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And here John tells us that the Son of God is always with the Father. He calls him the Word. He is God, and he was with God, and this can only be true if God is such a being that he is triune, that he is at the same time one, and at the same time three. One in being, one in essence, three persons, perfectly in union. And I acknowledge and we must acknowledge that this in its fullness is beyond our comprehension. Receiving this does not depend on us fully understanding how this can be. For God is incomparable. There are none like Him. And so I cannot point you to an illustration in our world and say it's like that. For there is no being in all creation that is like Him. He is utterly unique, but He has revealed to us this truth. That he is and always has been and always will be eternally one God, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect union. And So to say that Jesus is the Son of God, we do not say that he at some point became the Son of God by virtue of his birth or at his baptism as some have alleged in history, but we say that he has always been and always will be the Son of God. And yet we also acknowledge this great mystery that the Son of God in the course of time took on flesh. He did not cease to be God. For when we say He is the Son of God, we are confessing Him as God. He did not cease to be God. But He took to Himself a human nature so that He is fully God and fully man. One person. God and man. Indivisible. And we confess this about Jesus, and we believe this about the Son, because it is what God has revealed in Scripture. But in this great unfolding mystery, the beautiful reality of the the incarnation is that by becoming a man, of all the things that He accomplished, and He accomplished so many things that we could look at, one of those things is that He became like us so that He might show us what it means to live as children of God. For every one of us is called to be a son and a daughter of God. And has given us this privilege every one of us is given this privilege, if we come to Christ by faith, then we are adopted as children of God. And so we can look to Christ and see what it means and what it looks like to confess that Jesus is the Son of God, and to see how that is lived out in a human life even at this young age of 12, boys and girls, you see the Son of God showing you what faithfulness looks like in your context. We ought to look to Him and learn from Him so that we might move that knowledge toward action. We might move our understanding toward application by the grace of the Lord. So know this understand this, confess this, and live in light of the fact that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who took on flesh and became a man without ceasing to be fully God. Now, you must understand something about this idea of sonship as well. If you were to meet my Father, I think that you would be struck by how much I am like Him, from my mannerisms and the things I do. And if I met one of your parents, I'd probably say the same thing. One of the ways that Jesus is like the Father is the perfect image of the Father is that He perfectly shows the Father to us. But I don't mean in His physical form. It's not that when the disciples saw Jesus that they beheld God in His physical form. For God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. But when we think about what the New Testament tells us about the way that Jesus is the image of God, in Colossians 1.15, for instance, he is the image of the invisible God. If God is invisible and Christ is his image, he must be his image in a different sort of way. And then Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. His nature. He has the attributes perfectly and fully. All that God is, he is, and we see it lived out in a human life. And so when we see His grace, His love, His power, His justice, His holiness, and, his, and on and on, we see, Je- we see the Father, as He says. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And that's what it looks like in a human life. We see one who at the same time is mighty and powerful and humble and lowly and gentle and loving. And this is what our Heavenly Father is like. When God called Israel to live in accordance with the law, He said to them, Be holy as I am holy. And He gave them the law to show them what that meant and looked like. But you, probably in your life, when you want to fix something in your house, no longer read instruction manuals. You go to the internet and you watch a video of someone doing it. In Christ, John tells us in his prologue that we have A grace upon grace, or as Don Carson explains in his commentary, one grace that replaces another, a greater grace in Christ. We see a more perfect display of what it means to do the will of God in Christ. It's a better example. It's a a better picture. For in it, we see, in Him, we see the perfect Son of God. But all of this probably brings you. To a final question, which I can represent in a few ways. On the one hand, you look at this 12-year-old child, Jesus, in the temple, and you say, like me, I'm 36. I'm three times his age, and some of you are more. And he's the wisest of men at 12, and every, every day I'm such a fool. I'll never be like that. Or if you're like me, as I was a child, children... When someone says you should do what Jesus did, you say, well, that's easy for him to do. He's God, I'm not. But you also must understand this, that Jesus is greater than the law because when God gave the law, he did not give it with power. It did not have power to make men and women obedient to God's will. But Jesus did all things in his human life in the power of the Spirit as Luke will show in his unfolding gospel, and as Isaiah prophesied, that though he was God, as Paul tells us, he emptied himself. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. That is, he did not use the fact that he is God, but rather he depended in every way on the resources that God gives every human being, his spirit, if we accept Christ by faith. And the word, which we saw Jesus learning in the temple. And the fellowship, and teachers, and godly parents which Jesus had. These means that God has given us by which He is pleased to work to conform us to the image of His Son. Those were the means by which Jesus Christ was obedient in His human life. Perfectly obedient. So we cannot say, well it's easy for Him to be obedient, He's God. For He did it in the power of the Spirit, in accordance with the Word, in dependence upon the grace of His heavenly Father. That's what we're called to do too as we look to His example. And I want you to reflect on this for a moment. The Son of God was in the temple learning. The Son of God learned And he joyfully embraced it. He wanted to know his father's will. He wanted to know his word. And we also should commit ourselves to learn his word. And again, the Son of God submitted to his parents. Again, children, God has given you one commandment. Honor your father and mother. And he's given it with a promise. And for those of you who are here, he's given you godly parents or grandparents who are means by which God works in your life. That's what He gave to Christ. And He calls us to be like Him. And you're not going to do it perfectly, I promise you. You already failed in that. We all will. But through God's grace, He works through the same means in our lives to conform us to the image of His Son, which is His will. It is is His will that we should be adopted as His sons and be conformed to His image. That's why it was His will to send His Son as a servant to go to the cross and to give His life, to redeem us so that we might be sons and daughters of God. And so as we look to our older brother and we consider the life of Christ, let us look to Him and learn to look to our Heavenly Father. And learn what it means to live not only with Christ as our Lord and our Savior, but also as our brother, and our example from whom we learn what it means to live as children of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a gracious gift You've given us, this privilege, that You teach us to pray in that way, our Father in Heaven. What a joy it is to know You in this way. We don't deserve it, but You, by Your grace, have given this privilege to us. Lord, for those who are here, if, they are, if there are any here who have not yet come to know Your Son by faith, Lord, I pray that You would work in them to that end, through Your Word, to cause them to see and savor Your Word as they look to Christ and see Him ex- exalted. And glorified and love Him. May they love Him and may they trust Him. May they see in Him their Savior, their Redeemer, their Lord, and their brother. For those of us who are here who have trusted Christ, cause us, O Lord, to treasure these things in our hearts always. That we might go from this place rejoicing in our adoption as sons and daughters in your kingdom. That we might go from this place rejoicing in the salvation you've given us through Jesus Christ our Lord and brother. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.